You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to ask you about the USFL and your experience playing for, at you know, Donald Trump, who is now President Trump, of course. What was that like? It was wild. Game time with Boomer Esiason. This week's guest is NFL Pro Bowler, three-time Canadian Grey Cup champion and Heisman Trophy winner, Doug Flutie. Presented by GEICO. After this popular Heisman Trophy winner threw the most famous pass in college football history, he played in the USFL, the NFL, and the CFL, where he was six-time Player of the Year. John Madden hailed him as, inch for inch, the best quarterback of his generation. It is my pleasure to welcome the ultimate undersized underdog, Doug Flutie, the warrior. How you doing, Doug? Great doing to see great. you, man. Great to see you. You know, you and I have a lot in common. I don't know if you know this. So you grew up in Baltimore. You started right. out in Baltimore, and okay. you loved Jim Palmer, hence the number 22, right? And who was one of your favorite quarterbacks? That would be Burt Jones. Burt Which Jones is why I wore number seven. Which is amazing, right? And we kind of, like, overlapped each other in college. I went to Maryland. You went to Boston College. When did you realize that you were going to be a quarterback? I think at a young age, probably a, as a 10-year-old, I could just pick up the ball and throw it like a baseball, and the other kids couldn't. And I realized I wanted to be the guy in control with the ball in my hand. Now, at the younger ages, they didn't let you throw the ball much, so I moved to running back for a couple of years, but I always knew I was a quarterback. And, you know, going up through the high school years, I, that aspect of the game, the, the two-minute situations, the situational stuff, the cerebral part of the game was my forte. So... I knew I was a quarterback or I wanted to be. Did you have other quarterbacks that you studied when you were a kid? I don't think I studied them, but I would sit and watch NFL games. As a kid, I'm talking 10 to 12-year-old kid, and I'm watching mm-hmm. Roger Stallback handle two-minute drill better than anybody. Right. Situational scrambles and taking off. He'd always have the big scramble in that situation, used his timeouts correctly, all that. And I'd always criticize all these guys for when they <laughs> called their time. I'm a 10-year-old yeah. kid criticizing mm-hmm. NFL guys about when they're using their timeouts and all that. But back then... You know, the guys I actually idolized were like Fran Tarkenton and Roger Stallback, the guys that moved around, scrambled, and extended plays. Well, it's kind of like who you, I would say, patterned your game after. Um, but, you know, I would imagine, as I read the lead-in, you always had a chip on your shoulder because somebody was always there saying that you were too small. Oh, at every level. Even when I went from junior high school to high school, they were afraid to put me on varsity right away. They knew skill-wise I could do some things. They were afraid to put me on varsity because they thought I'd get hurt. I weighed like 155 pounds. And then each level, that was the obstacle. That was getting the opportunity. Once I got on the field, they forget about it. They just, you know, that would go out of their mind. But I wore number 22 
because they thought I'd wind up changing positions at Boston College. You know, I was very fortunate to get a Division One offer only because two other guys went mm. elsewhere that they really wanted. They were scrambling around. You know, it's kind of the same thing happened to me because there was a coach at Boston College. His name was Ed Klebeck, if you remember. And uh, I was told that I was not good enough to play at Boston College, and I think they probably said the same thing to you. But then all of a sudden he gets fired or moves on, and Jack Bicknell becomes the head coach at Boston College. He was trying to get you to go to Maine, yeah. right? So he he kept his word. He kept his promise. He saw something in you. You know, it, it was it was funny. He got the job. And now they were late in the recruiting season, and they're scrambling around just getting guys. And that core group of guys that we turned that program around at BC were all Ivy League-type kids that didn't get D1 offers. And now late in the recruiting season, they're chasing around just getting athletes. And he did. He was, he was the one. I had Tom Coughlin, actually, as an offensive right. coordinator. And I had Jack Bicknell on game day. Rapping his <laughs> what was Tom Coughlin like in college? <laughs> that was intense. Technical Tom, you were in the meeting room 10 minutes before the meeting starts. The notebooks are open, feet on the floor, you know, so he never straight, changed. you're ready. And yes. that door, when he walks in that door, you're ready to take notes, you know, and it was great for me, especially at that age, uh, the discipline. And uh, once, once I played for Tom, everybody else was easy. After the USFL folded back in 1986, Doug Flutie signed with the NFL Chicago Bears. Coach Mike Ditka called him a winner. But before we get to the Bears, I want to ask you about the USFL and your experience playing for, you know, Donald Trump, who is now President Trump, of course. What was that like? It was wild. I was a young kid coming out of school, and I knew I was getting offered a lot of money over here in the USFL from Trump. And I was a big variable question mark with the NFL. So I took the sure thing and I signed a ridiculous contract. Now I'm going into camp two to three weeks late. The New Jersey Generals. New Jersey Generals. We were actually at UCF in Orlando at camp. And because I signed so late, they made the rest of the team go through an extra week of doubles. <laughs> Not only that, I was making as much as pretty much the rest of the team combined Herschel other Walker, than Herschel. Right. And... You know, I, I made friends in a hurry. And then I go in, and Brian Sipes, the starting quarterback. Yep. And Brian, you know, veteran guy, great quarterback, pro bowler, all that. The next day, they trade Brian, and they anoint me the starter. I'm like, okay, I can learn from Brian a little bit here. I'll, I'll work in. No. It was like thrown to the wolves right away. But we were run like an NFL franchise. We had everything an NFL franchise needed. And uh, we... Uh, we're very competitive. We had a bunch of guys. Kent Hall was our center, yeah, perennial yeah, pro sure. bowler. Yeah. We had a ton of guys that just jumped right back to the NFL and were pro bowls. Like, uh, what was it like playing for Donald Trump? Did you have much interaction with him? I had very little. I was 22, and I was a quiet kid anyway. And I was like, yes, sir, no, sir. I was afraid to talk. <laughs> and it, what was really cool was later on in life bumping into him and having a real conversation and, and kind of being on an equal playing field and talk to them. All right, so now you go to Chicago. They're coming off of a uh, Super Bowl, and they have one of the best teams in the league, and they have Mike Ditka, they have Buddy Ryan, they have Jim McMahon, they have Mike Tomczak, and here comes Doug Flutie. I mean, you couldn't have picked a better place? Uh, i tell you, well, what happened was McMahon uh, needed shoulder surgery, actually both shoulders. He, was, he couldn't throw the ball at that time, and he was all beat up. Um, Ditka did not... I guess, believe in Tom Zacherfuller to get the job done. I was available and he believed in me and went and got me with the idea of getting me into the lineup right away and right. getting me playing. I was there for 10 days and it was on a Monday night and we were playing Detroit. Tom Zach was starting the game, but he had planned on playing me some. First series of the game, he strains a calf and I'm in. I've got a wristband with 10 plays on it right. for the entire game. I did nothing but hand the ball all, all, all night. I think we win six to three. 
and I got kind of thrown to the wolves right away. You then go on to the, uh, the, the CFL, and this is where you find really, I mean, that this game fits your skill set. Wider field, more players, longer field. You're, you're an athlete playing quarterback, and you really found it to be, obviously, a huge success. It was, it was a blessing, and I, I didn't realize it right away, but what it did more than it, yes, we ran spread offenses. Yes, I took off and ran a little more and all that, but the coaches up there kind of backed off. And I, the first team I went to, I didn't even know the league or the rules, and I'm calling my own plays, <laughs> but it was the best thing that ever happened because I started putting myself in a position to be successful. If you're calling your own plays, you're only calling things that you're good at, that you're confident in. Instead of having a play call and you've got to think, okay, what are we looking for? We practiced it on Wednesday. We were hoping for this coverage. We're checking out. If you, I really started to take command of game planning and play calling and, and putting myself in position. And this was with the BC Lions, right? BC Up Lions. in Vancouver. Correct. Who was the coach there? A guy named Larry Coherick okay. at the time, who was an NFL mentality. And we were under center and doing a lot of NFL type things. And I was kind of struggling a little bit. He got fired, and we brought in a guy named Baba Bilovich. And he was a perennial CFL guy that ran some CFL style off. And a shotgun. Oh, yeah. And it just blossomed. It just wide opened, <laughs> and it, it just started to turn. All right. We're here with the 1984 Heisman Trophy winner who rewrote the CFL record book. He won three Grey Cups and years later was voted the CFL's greatest player ever. Doug Flutie also became the first non-Canadian inducted into the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame. So congratulations on that. But I mean, what is it like when you're, you find out that you're the greatest Canadian football player in history? I knew a little history of the league. Once I started playing up there, the older players that had played, a guy named Ron Lancaster, uh, and, you know, Warren Moon had played up yep. there and, and all these names that I was aware of. And so it was very flattering to me. And I thoroughly enjoyed those years. I was very fortunate that I played a little bit with my younger brother up there. He had a phenomenal career up there. Darren. Yep. Darren. Uh, just a fun part of my career. And uh, so appreciative of the fact that it relaunched my career because it rekindled my confidence. Yeah, I was going to say it was BC, it was Calgary and Toronto, all three teams. And, you know, there was also this rap for some reason that you couldn't win in the cold, cold weather games. I mean, a guy that played in Boston and, you know, played in Chicago. I mean, come on. I lost one cold weather game that was a big game. And all of a sudden I couldn't, which I, and I, from those days forward, actually, I loved cold weather because I got good at throwing with the gloves on. Yeah. And I always felt like it was an advantage because I had a great grip on the ball because of gloves. And I, you can cut it through the wind, spin it a little better. And because of my mobility, the wind and cold didn't matter. I'd take off and run. I always thought that was an advantage. Yeah, it didn't make any sense because no. you ended up with the Buffalo Bills of all teams. <laughs> Two of my great cups were yes. in snow and nasty weather up there. So I, It was I crazy. It was, it was crazy. But, you know, you know, CFL basically allowed you to restart your career and your odyssey back into the NFL. And, you know, you were actually on the sideline for the Music City Miracle, yes, which is amazing. You lead your team to the playoffs, and somehow you don't start a playoff game. And I, I would think that that probably still irks you to this day. Yes, it does. I thought we had a really good shot that year. We had a great defense. We ran the ball well, and I was making plays on third down to move the chains. It wound up being a situation where the other guy was making more money. They needed to see him. One of them on the field got a chance to play. You were one of those guys at one time in your career where you were making more money, and they traded a guy away because you had a place. So don't have that kind of chip on your I don't think I shoulder. ever did that. No, you don't think so? I was never in that situation. I wish I was in that situation. But Rob went in and played exceptionally well in the last regular season game against an Indianapolis team that I think you know, was sitting play. Anyway, 
I had a perfect view of the lateral. I still think it was forward. I give low Neil. I ran into Lorenzo Neal. He throws the lateral. And I ran into him out at Super Bowl at Radio Row, and we talk about it every year. I'm like, it was four inches forward low. And it's still illegal. <laughs> and that had a, but that had to hurt, though. I mean, that, that, it, I mean, the whole fact is because your coach basically after the game says, if you would have played, you probably would have won the game. I, I know that Wade was in my corner and that Wade really would have liked to have played me and wanted to. And I think it came from above, whether it was management or ownership. There's other factors and, you know, that, that go into it sometimes. If we finish that season and I'm the starter, you know, contracts. Maybe you stay there. Yeah. And you go from Buffalo now to San Diego yeah. and you run into a young guy out there by the name of, uh, what was his name? Yeah, uh, Drew. Oh, Drew Brees, right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, and I'm uh, thinking that Drew Brees must have idolized you because you guys were both the same height. Uh, we were very similar and just our approach, too, and the things we did. We were very com- not, not competitive so much with each other, but we loved to compete at little games all the time. Drew, you could see it right away. He had that knack about him, and, and he loved playing. He was a, a gamer-type guy. I went out there, and we, we, we got off to a good start that season. We had a bunch of injuries, and we ended up struggling. Uh, they even gave up on Drew, you know, a couple of years later. I know Drew, they did. Drew, Drew got banged up. Well, actually, Drew started the second year. I had to come in and, and sub in quite a bit that year. The third year, Drew had a decent season, and was they had already drafted Phillip because they were kind of giving up. They blew his shoulder out in his last game. They blew his shoulder out, which is then the whole Drew Breeze Odyssey takes over, and you're like right in the middle of all this. There needs to be a motivation for me. It was always my height. For Drew, it was the fact that yeah, it was a, a number one draft, but. They gave up on him, and I think he's had that chip on his shoulder ever since and motivated him even further. It's just something has to drive you. So, Doug, we were talking about Drew Brees a little bit off camera, and I'm just wondering what other kind of impact you may have had on him when you were playing and he was sitting watching. You know, you don't realize you're having an impact on players, and then Drew and I talk about it years later. And I think the one thing or the significant thing was that when Drew struggled in his second year and I had to fill in a handful of games, I really – was specific about what plays I want to call for me. And I think Drew saw that and he realized he's got to take ownership in the offense and be a part of the game plan process. Drew really even took it to a whole nother level uh, from there forward. See, this is why it's great for a young player to sit behind somebody who's gone through a career that has been filled with success and also some struggle along the way because then they see how you prepare and then maybe that helps them later on in their career. And it had to help Drew because I think Drew right now is probably, when you think about, for me anyway, I don't care how tall he is, he's a top three or four quarterback all time. No doubt given Given the success he has. So there's no question you had an impact on him. And then you leave there, and then you run into another young quarterback. And this young quarterback's got a ginormous chip on his shoulder, and he's six foot four and all this other stuff, and this is what's fueling his career. And that quarterback happens to be Tom Brady in New England. So when you first met him, what, what did you think? I, I was just amazed at Tom's work ethic. You know, here's Even a guy at that, that young age. By the, time, by the time I got there, he had already won Super Bowl. Yeah. I mean, he's analyzing his, his throwing motion constantly. He's constantly working to be per- perfect. For my size, I had a strong arm. I could still sling it. And I caught Tom one day watching film, like during training camp, like, how the hell do you throw the ball that hard? <laughs> you know, he's trying to see the whip. Because I, I was real whippy in my whole motion. I was not textbook by any stretch. But you were a natural thrower, yeah. though. That's I what could, you were. I could just pick up a ball and throw it like I threw a baseball. Yes. And Tom's like, the more over the top, the more accurate he is. And he has his, his little throwing coach guru and all. And he, no one prepared like Tom. No one. Uh, he knew that game plan like the back of his hand. And you know how in two minutes you could call a lot of your own plays. You would discuss things during the week. And they would just come to Tom on the fly, situational, red zone, everything. 
And he just had it all down like the back of his hand. You know, and you're back in New England again, and this time you have Belichick as your head coach. And um, what about any unique things about him and what you learned from him for playing for him? The one thing I saw in him that was different from every other coach, we come in at a meeting on Wednesday morning. I thought you had that with Tom Coughlin, didn't you? You better, you better, yeah. Tom, Tom would do the same thing. He'd quiz yeah. you in a different way. Okay. He would stick tape in the middle of the reel to reel that he'd send home with you to see if you watched it. You know, so when you come and say, "Yeah, I watched the film," no, you didn't. It's right there. He'd pull all those tricks. But Bill would sit the guys down. Now these guys, a lot of coaches don't like calling the guys out. He would. I mean, you better studied your game plan before you're in that seat Wednesday morning for the first meeting. You know who you're facing, and all that. And he he did that more than any coach. He almost scared the guys into preparing, and he made sure that mentally, he pushed his guys mentally yeah. more than any other coach. At least one recent headline wondered whether today's NFL would have been perfect for Doug Flutie. Would it have been? I would have loved to have tried. Let me put it that way. A I lot feel of like we have a little Canadian football influence oh, no right now. No doubt. It's a lot of this concepts and things that we did in the CFL. And I, I credit Damon Allen, Mark and Salen's younger brother, mm -hmm. for starting all the RPO stuff. And I copied him right away. And we were doing that stuff in the 90s. Well, you know, no longer is five foot ten a bad thing if you're a quarterback. Look mm -hmm. at Kyler Murray. Look at Russell Wilson. Look it. at uh, Drew Brees. I mean, they're short, yes, but somehow they compensate yeah. because they're great athletes and have the right personality. The one variable for small quarterbacks or shorter is arm strength. And a lot of smaller quarterbacks don't have it. The guys that have it, there's no reason why they can't succeed. Are you amazed by what Russell Wilson does? Because I don't necessarily know that there's you a know, quarterback in the league that does more than he does. And he throws a deep ball so well. Hitting the downfield shots as well as he's a lot more athletic than people realized when he came into the league as well. Were you surprised by Kyla Murray's early success as a rookie? No, because he's so darn athletic. And, and as a young guy, you can make up for a lot of things with pure athletic. You can't win with right. just athleticism but you can get off to a decent start with it. You know, we, we have other things in common, too, and one of those things, unfortunately for us, is our sons were afflicted with a, a different ailment. You know, my son was cystic fibrosis, your son, Doug Jr., with autism right around the same time. Yeah. Uh, and it's coined the quarterback's curse of our era. Jim Kelly, unfortunately, lost his son, Hunter. Tell me about Dougie Jr. How's your foundation doing? How's he doing? Uh, we're 21 years now. Gome. Dougie is doing great. He's 28 years old, and his awareness level, he's very low-functioning, right. uh, nonverbal, but his awareness level continues to improve. He horseback rides. I get him on a surfboard every now and throwing him in the waves. He loves falling off and getting splashed and knocked around. So um, things are going well. The foundation's going strong. You know, I know that part of your life is tough because my part of my life is tough too, but I can't imagine my life without my son. Oh, no Could doubt. you ima imagine your life without and Dougie? I had people at a younger age, well, when Dougie was maybe 10 to 12, you know, when he turns 18, you should probably put him in a home. You guys deserve your life. It's like, you go put your kid in a home. That's right? my life. He you is know? your life. He is our life. This is what we do. We love it. And we feel like everything that is accomplished by the foundation is in his name. And this is his legacy. It's what he's doing. That's great. That is awesome. Now, you are an accomplished drummer. And no, you are. You know, listen, I've heard you play with Aerosmith, John Bon Jovi. You play with uh, who else? Uh, Skinner to my old Skinner was okay. pretty cool. What is it? Um, are you more nervous playing drums for them than you would be playing, say, quarterback for the Patriots? The first couple times I did it, yes. Now I like live for those opportunities because I'm relaxed and having fun. And I'm, I'm not a polished technical drummer, but I'm a good solid rock drummer. And I do what we do very well. 
and it, it's a lot of fun. Well, what a way to end a career, man, and what a career it was. Dougie, appreciate, appreciate it. it, man. Thanks so much. It's great to have Doug Flutie join us today, and thanks to you for all watching. I'm Boomer Esaias, and I'll see you again right here on Game Time with IndyCar sensation Simone Pagino next. You know, my kids both went to Boston College, and there's that, that bronze statue of you. I had to walk past 100 different times. It's actually bigger than you are. You know that, right? So they measured it this way to 5'10", but I'm in a crouched position with the arm cocked. Yeah. So it's like I'm six foot four up exactly. there. Exactly. I know it's bigger than life, and you deserve it.